being accountable is really important because, you know, I've worked for several dating apps and I've seen firsthand what happens when people aren't, aren't accountable, i.e. they can ghost people, they can bench them, they can be, they can troll, they can do a whole range of, uh, you know, pretty negative behaviours. And it's because they can get away with it because at the end of the day, they're kind of just a picture and a first name on a profile. Exactly, yeah. And so actually there's something about the pandemic making people more accountable to each other. Hi, and a warm welcome to season four of Brown Don't Frown podcast. I hope you're well and safe wherever you are. BDF's first episode went live in October 2019. And since then, BDF has brought three seasons and over 40 incredible guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I hope you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energised and inspired. Today we'll be talking about dating, long-term romance, interracial relationships and slowing down during the pandemic. I'm delighted to be joined by a journalist, broadcaster and author of The Curious History of Dating, Nikki Hodgson. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tanya. Great to be here. Fantastic. It would be great if you could tell us a bit more uh, about yourself before we delve into the questions. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear a bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I have worked in the media for the past decade. Um, I am a journalist first and foremost, but I've become something of a dating and relationships expert as well. Uh, primarily because I started out reporting about sex and relationships and gender, and then uh, ended up working in some dating apps and doing some date coaching. Very briefly, I was a Silicon Valley matchmaker for a time, which was very interesting. Very niche. Um, <laughs> very niche, uh, very, very fun. Um, I write books and um, you'll see me pop up on Sky News every so often because I review the papers and do some talking head stuff and that kind of thing. So quite a broad spectrum. I I understand the link between it, but for other people, sometimes it's a bit tenuous, but there is, there is a path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's get stuck in then. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about dating and the challenges and the perils. Uh, and as a uh, self-certified dating expert, I think it'll be interesting to get your insight, um, particularly about dating um, in pandemic times. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, whether you think it's maybe accelerated um, further innovations to dating apps to give a more sort of realistic dating experience um, and whether virtual relationships uh, are going to be more common in the future and what might that mean for things like uh, artificial intelligence, uh, robotic engineering, and a bit more about how dating apps have generally sort of commodified romance and whether that sets unrealistic expectations for relationships. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, let's start with the first the first question, this idea of whether um, the pandemic has accelerated the pace of relationships, because I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. I think, I think without a doubt, 
definitely probably I would say summer of last year people were kind of throwing caution to the wind maybe they were breaking lockdown maybe they weren't but they were certainly meeting outside in the kind of limited capacity they could and they were hooking up quickly they were forming deep bonds often they've been talking to people online for months by the time they'd actually got to see this person they were you know really overexcited and zealous about having some human contact let's put it that way yeah definitely the build up yeah the build up had been very long I think for lots of people they just thought why am I wasting time anymore I think the pandemic has given a lot of people who were single a bit too much time to to feel lonely actually and you know because everybody's been doing everything at home if you live by yourself it really is a kind of unrealistic interpretation of what life is Mm. and what I mean by that is if you are single normally and you live in a city or wherever you live actually you live in a community you don't often feel lonely because there are plenty of things you can be doing with your time you generally have colleagues that you interact with you you might have family you definitely have friends you have hobbies you have interests so you're getting that need for social connection met even if you don't have a partner and then the pandemic really kind of discriminated against single people yes especially at the beginning because there was really this sense that well single people will just have to get on with it and there was really no There was no slack given and no leeway cut for the fact that being on your own all the time is incredibly bad for you. I mean, we use it as a punishment in prisons. We use it as a punishment in torture. There's a reason why isolation is not good for your mental health. And lots of people suffered as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, like, we moved on through the summer and some of people moved in together because they were just like I will I you're pretty much okay and I think you're out you know I think we could get on for a few months and let's just give it a shot which I completely understand and so we've got some people who are now maybe further along than they would have been if they'd have been dating and kind of so-called pre-pandemic landscape but I don't think that's necessarily to the bad because if they've been honest about their needs and they've been genuinely intimate then yeah, it's just moved a bit quicker than it usually would, but it doesn't mean that they have, um, how can I put it? Less genuine relationship. Absolutely, you took the words out of my mouth. It doesn't mean there's anything less genuine about it. I think it's Mm. important to remember that when you go back in history, and when I did for writing the Curious History of Dating, people generally did move in together quicker, actually. Mm. In the 60s, in the 1960s in the UK, on most people's first dates, they tended to pick up their date from their parents' house. And that was a really common thing to do. So there was always a greater proximity to family, to community. From the off, people were more accountable. Mm, Yeah. Maybe that's why it sped things up because you knew that your family or your friends approved of this other person and then you could sort of move move quite swiftly on. Whereas, Whereas with the modern day of dating, it's very difficult to place someone that you don't know who's not in the same circle as your friends, just sort of plonk them down into your circle and expect them to instantly get along with everyone. So I think that's definitely a challenge there. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, being accountable is really important because, you know, I've worked for several dating apps and I've seen firsthand what happens when people aren't, aren't accountable, i.e. they can ghost people, they can bench them, they can be, they can troll, they can do a whole r- range of, uh, you know, pretty negative behaviors and it's because they can get away with it because at the end of the day they're kind of just a picture and a first name on a profile exactly yeah and so actually there's something about the pandemic making people more accountable to each other that's actually been good for daters yeah so that that I think is is important to say and I don't think that's the popular narrative actually about dating no it isn't Um, 
Yeah, not from um, what I've heard anyway. I mean, no. Yeah. And then when I when the pandemic was first unrolling in kind of March, April last year, what I noticed that was that all the major dating apps were very quick to roll out video or they were experimenting with video dating. Mm. And this is something that they've devised years ago, but it, it's never really been fully integrated into most dating apps. It's never really worked. And there's a number of reasons for that, but actually I think it's that most people find it a bit over intimate when they're, you know, just getting to know somebody. Yeah. And emotions. Obviously, because of what we have now, which is a kind of Zoom culture, and we're used to talking, you know, through these mediums, I think that the the tolerance for that has actually gone up. Yeah. So I think what we will see as a long lasting result of the pandemic is this move into video dating and a, a, um, much less resistance to it. it. Like the industry was waiting for something to happen to kind of propel it on and the pandemic mm. has kind of been that thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think the one thing I've seen as someone who, you know, hasn't really used dating apps, I've always been in relationships through mutual friends, through mutual connections. Um, and so when my friends talk about things like, yeah, dating via apps, I I honestly find it so alienating or not alienating, but like, I just, I can't, I sort of detach myself from it. And what yeah. I hear is through other people's stories. And one thing that keeps coming up, especially during this pandemic, is that people seem, a lot of my single friends seem very, very desperate to settle down with someone um, and just be in a happy, healthy relationship. Um, and they, they tend to comment a lot on my relationship with my, um, with my partner. We now recently got engaged. And they're like, oh, you're so, you know, you're so lucky that you found someone that you settled down. And I think a lot of the time it can feel a bit of like a minefield when you're dating online. And it feels at first it feels like you're sport for choice and you've got so many options. But then when you when it comes down to it, all it is is just a, an algorithm and you might not get exposure to, to certain types of people based on your interests and your preferences. And it's very difficult, I think, over a screen to really know, get to know someone in that way without actually physically meeting them. And maybe there are so many barriers online that you end up not meeting someone that you might, you know, be really well suited for, but maybe not so much on paper. And so that might sort of turn people off. And it's interesting that you mentioned the dynamic changing quite a lot with um, dating apps now because of the pandemic has accelerated, you know, the, the people's comfort with just interacting behind a screen and the willingness to, you know, interact via video calls as opposed to just texting or exchanging photos and things like that. So and you, you know, you've written the book, Curious History of Dating, um, which I think I'm sure draws parallels with things like courting. And you mentioned the touched upon, you know, being at home, dating sort of informally through courtship by, you know, in a home setting, in, in a home context, in a, pri in a private context, and how that sort of shifted f to um, public spaces. So when people date, Today, it, it's either a cinema or a restaurant or a bar, and that's shifted quite dramatically over the last century or so, I'd say. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I found, that I noticed probably writing the book, was that when women's rights improved, their options for dating changed. So at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, it's important to remember that women were still being chaperoned. You still couldn't leave your house yeah. in the West. In the West, I've got to be specific, specific about that. Yeah. Is there uh, you still couldn't leave your house without somebody taking you out. You couldn't. You certainly couldn't be seen on the streets with a young man that you were not married to. Yeah. And then the First World War completely changed that because you know the men went to war and suddenly the men uh, 
the men weren't there to chaperone anyone no, anymore and exactly. women had to just get on with it by themselves so that was a, a, that would have felt so different that would have felt you know so exciting probably so frightening very captivating for lots of people and uh we we you know the pandemic hasn't actually been that dramatic if you compare it to that time period yeah yeah but uh you know it is things that happen in history that do all of a sudden just kind of like explode our morals overnight like change what we find acceptable socially acceptable to do and so in terms of thinking about ai again that technology has been quite well developed already but it hasn't been capitalized it hasn't been capitalized upon because people mm. are just not ready to use it with dating. No. And I think one of the biggest problems is that some of the things that are proposed seem to really come from a kind of bro culture in Silicon Valley. There yeah. are not enough women at the helm in devising these kinds of uh, dating technologies that could actually just give people more information about the person that they mm. potentially want to meet. So would you um, say it's unfairly biased maybe towards the male gaze as opposed to having a more equal footing between different sexes? Yeah, that's one yeah. point. I think that men don't think enough about safety, about mm. how women feel about safety. Yeah, I think that some of the men that I met when I was working in the dating industry were just so very clinical about the practice of using the apps. And they were kind of forgetting that there was a person behind the pixels, as I like to say. So <laughs> yeah. they just, they, because they knew there was an algorithm running most of the dating apps, they were seeing it as a kind of mathematical challenge that if they swiped enough times and did certain things on their profile and tricked the system, then they could get some kind of end result that would be satisfying. Not mm. thinking that in the meantime, they were turning down human beings all the time. Yeah, it's a very I abstract problem to be solved as opposed yes, to the real exactly. People. And I think that's why it's interesting that uh, an increasing slate of apps are trying to de-gamify the app, the app system that they use, which means that they're not making as many matches. It takes longer to meet someone. It's kind of not as exciting to use, maybe. You mm. need to do things with the technology to make it engaging, but yeah. you actually get a better result and it's a more ethical result a lot of the time as well. Yeah, that does sound very reassuring. And I think a lot of the time it is just going to have to be trial and error, but... Mm. Yeah, the pandemic's definitely accelerated a lot of people's, the way they think about dating, I think it's, it might have even altered dating culture in a way that I think previously there was a lot of focus on instant gratification. It was like, yeah. from what I heard, it was literally just like shopping or for hookups as well, which is fine. A lot of people use dating apps for hookups and mm -hmm. I think that's perfectly normal. But um, for those people who are looking for long-term relationships, there was um, a, quite a big obsession among people that I knew with things like lists and how they wanted, what sort of criteria they had. Mm. Um, and I think that made it quite challenging to find that person who ticked all the right boxes. Whereas in real life, if you were introduced to someone via a mutual friend, you wouldn't instantly think, oh, does this person have exactly what I want? You just sort of, have that interaction and usually within I think half an hour or an hour of meeting someone you really know whether you're whether you like them whether you're drawn to them or you're attracted to them and things might not develop um for for a while but I think having that instant connection is something that's certainly a miss with um with dating apps and I mean I don't have personal experience of it but it's really interesting um, and I wanted to ask you what um the most interesting thing that you learned from researching for and writing um, The Curious History of Dating? Well, probably it was that LGBTQI dating has always gone on and that queer people have been really ingenious about the methods they've used to 
find each other. Mm. So I'm bisexual, it's particularly interesting to me. I have a podcast called Bisexual Brunch where, you know, we talk about all the kinds of things that are affecting bi people and and some of the things that hold us back still, um, judgments in society, misperceptions, et cetera. Yeah. And so one of the things that I was kind of really amused and pleased by were things like in the Victorian era, there were secret drag balls that happened at underground clubs. Oh, and wow. I mean, you were just, ne- I've just never heard of that. I've never heard of that before. When yeah, it's not these- in the mainstream. Yeah. yeah. People don't know there are all it. these fascinating programs about Victorian England on TV, but they never tap into that stuff at all. And then in the 1930s, for example, people used to use, there were these popular, popular celebrity magazines, um, you know, precursors of heat, but they were kind of, they're not gossipy, but they were kind of much more enthralled to the Hollywood stars of the day. Yeah. Uh, but they would also have a fan mail page and like a pen pal page. And in that, the readers of the magazine would write to each other and they would use references to the celebrities they fancied and whether they were a so-called friend of Dorothy, as we like to say in the queer community, um, to, uh, you know, basically send out a message that, they were secretly gay and it'd be nice if they could meet somebody else that was into Doris Day, for example. Oh, wow. And they might say where they were in the country and then they could have a PO box. So it was a really cute way of communicating and also yeah. very a very vital way because it's really important to remember that it was still extremely illegal to be, you know, gay in the 1930s yeah. and, you know, the the laws were draconian against mm. queer people. It's, so it's, Yeah, it feels so, like, far removed from today's reality, the fact that it was illegal. Like, just getting my head around it just feels so bizarre. I know it was like a long time ago, but the fact that it's illegal now and just and having that contrast with even 100 years ago, it just seems like it's just insane. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think it does in the UK. I mean, I think it's important that when you travel, like when I was working for dating apps and I was thinking internationally about our queer community, which I often did on a dating app, you know, when you travel, you all of a sudden realise that there's a bunch of places in the world where you are not accepted, where it's not no. okay. Yeah. be yourself and to date and you know in a matter of a sort of 10 hour flight your reality has shifted your the threat level to you has shifted completely and, yeah and I think one of the problem with most global dating apps is they don't do enough to protect their LGBT communities they don't they don't think enough from the design point of view mm. and from the culture point of view from the from the first point of making the app of what might happen if maybe somebody is on grind in London and then gets a flight to Dubai and forgets to turn off their uh, GPS location, for example, and then mm. all of a sudden they're in danger. So there, there are little things like that that I think they seem small, but they could have huge repercussions and they have had re- huge repercussions in the past. So I think we, yeah, we, we need to think a bit more globally about how we look after our LGBT dating community. Yeah. We really haven't got on top of yet. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've never actually thought about that in that way. Um, I'm just thinking about the sort of mainstream dating apps that we see. Mm. Um, they're, they're, most of them are built in, in the West, so in the US yeah. or the UK or European countries. Um, and so maybe there's a sort of a lack of awareness of some of the clientele who may wish to live abroad, who might interact with people from other parts of the world and what that means in terms of their sort of human rights and their own protections. And maybe there's more thinking to do around how we can navigate that. 
but I think a lot of inroads are being made um, from what I've seen in, in, in a lot of countries in South Asia where there a lot of trans uh, women have started coming out and saying, you know, we demand our rights and they've been protesting. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has been quite refreshing to see as opposed to everything sort of happening. It's sort of like going back in time 100 years because everything happens behind closed doors. You hear about all these tiny towns um, in in India where they where they have communities, but they're all sort of masqueraded with a different type of front, and that makes mm-hmm. it very surreptitious. But it's it's unfair that they can't you know open themselves up and be who they are, um, which is particularly important for dating and if you want if you're wanting to settle down with a long term partner, not being able to be transparent about that um, sure. is really I guess pretty sad um, and unfair. Yeah, there's a really amazing book by uh, a journalist called Mark Gavissa called The Pink Line, and I interviewed him last year. And it's really about the fight for LGBTQI rights the world over and the places where you might not expect there to be tolerance where there kind of is. Mm. So often you'll find in certain countries that actually the local community can be very accepting of the trans people within it, but the laws don't right. support yeah. that. And um, isn't it Pakistan where it's legal? It's I think it's Pakistan where uh, you can put a, a third gender on your passport, for example. Well, you can't oh, do that. In, wow, can't do that in the UK. Yeah. So the you know it's not as straightforward as a kind of like West versus East thing, which sometimes no, it's not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's a lot more nuanced than that. There's, yeah, much think, more. There's a divide between private life, personal life versus the state and what they're. Yeah view perception is um and even on in the uk like it was it was normalized um but the government didn't actually ratify legalizing same-sex marriage until very recently so yeah um, of course it was under david cameron and then you know i remember as a little girl the age i probably would have been maybe like eight years old the age Mm. of consent for gay people was you know it wasn't the same as for straight people and i remember that changing and that was very very recently so, you know, I think we, you know, it, it, from the outside, it looks like, oh, everything's kind of shifted to a really comfortable place of equanimity for everybody, but it kind of, it's very, very recent. So mm. I don't know, I think there are still lots of people in this country with quite a lot of intolerant views and maybe they don't voice them anymore because we've kind of gone past the point of voicing them, but they still exist, they're still there. Mm. Do you think um, dating apps which are catered to uh, the LGBTQ community do enough to protect them from hate? Yes, I think and... I think they work very hard from the day they're created. That is kind of their mission, actually. Yeah, and they have to do a lot more uh, activism than any of the mainstream apps do. Even if the mainstream apps are catering for the LGBTQI community, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting that like Grinder, for example, had huge problems in Egypt where um, basically men were using Grindr and they were being arrested for using Grindr and people being beaten up and mm. the police were entrapping them. It was really, really difficult a few years ago. And so Grindr set up a very specific um, department within it to deal with that, to tackle that, to tackle LGBTQI safety. So, you know, have to, you know, for all the trouble that went on, you have to take your hat off to them because they went to solve the problem. Yeah, they actually there did something there, about it. Yeah, yeah, but then there are apps like Her, for example, which, you know, has always been for queer women. And from the first day, safety has been paramount. And, mm. you know, they've invested a huge amount. They've grown much slower than a lot of other apps. But 
that has been because they've done things more ethically from the beginning and they you know that's the that's the principle they've kind of worked with yeah it's, just, it's really important um and i guess moving on to um relationships long-term relationships mm. uh, marriage i um i understand that you recently got married uh, and um i have just got engaged to my long-term partner so i think it'll be interesting discussing what love cohabitation partnership means to us especially during the pandemic when we're stuck at home um with some couples i've seen it's it's broken them up um because they've had too much of each other whereas for others i think it's blossomed um for me it's definitely been the latter um which is which is really pleasantly surprising because it's it's not the case for everyone um and yeah i just wanted to know a bit more about your experience and then also we could talk a bit more about you know i guess quote unquote unconventional relationships you know, whether it's polyamorous relationships long term um, you know, dating in open relationships, that sort of thing, and what your views are on that. Mm, yeah, okay. So yeah, well, congratulations for getting engaged, by the way. That's really <laughs> Thank nice. You. When, when did you get engaged? Um, I got engaged in October. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I got married in November. Um, I was meant to have a big June wedding, as in oh, last wow. June. Oh, and right. then it all kind of went, you know, into the air. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, probably the hardest thing about our wedding was the fact that we couldn't have our families there because my family live in Australia. Oh my gosh, so, yeah. Uh, my husband's family are in London, but we decided that if we couldn't have one family, then we couldn't have the other. It kind of wasn't fair to it's either. So, yeah. So we had the tiniest wedding we could have, which was literally two witnesses and a photographer and the two of us, that was it. But it was oh still gosh. absolutely amazing. It was, Who were your um, witnesses? Uh, they were just our best friends, our mutual best friends. Oh. Um, so it was delightful. Um, it was literally the day before the November lockdown came in place. Like we had originally planned it for the 5th of November when lockdown was about to come back in. We managed on the Sunday before to bring it forward a day. It was so stressful. Oh but my we, God. We, we, I was like, oh no, it's going to get cancelled again. I can't hack it twice. But um, it did get rearranged. And uh, yeah, it, it was like a fantastic day. It was such, such wow. a positive day. So, and I think it taught me a lot because I'd, I had never really planned my wedding or dreamed about my wedding. I really, I wasn't kind of hooked into the myth of weddings. I didn't mm. think I was, but then when we started organizing the wedding, the wedding was getting bigger and bigger and more elaborate and more people were coming and, you know, it was kind of going over two days and, and oh, wow. um, yeah. you know, it was extremely expensive. So we did save ourselves a lot of money, which was good. Um, but I... I just really realized on the day that it really wasn't about anything but the two of us. Mm. And the the plans that I'd had would have kind of taken away from the intimacy of the day. So I I was very grateful, actually, that the universe sort of taught me a lesson about my relationship, yeah. not giving me that wedding. So if you could go back, would you choose to have that small wedding or would you want to have it big? I mean, I... I I just wish we could have had our families there. If we'd have had yeah, our families there, then it would have been perfect. That's probably yeah. the only thing that I would actually change. But it mm. was still a gorgeous day. We're still going to have a, a big wedding party next year at some point. Um, and basically we celebrate from the reception onwards with everybody. I'm going to rewear my dress, uh, you know, do all those kinds of things. So we <laughs> we still get that experience. So yeah, that, that's the plan. Yeah, sounds really wonderful. Yeah, it's making me reevaluate re actually whether I want to have a big wedding or not. I mean, I haven't really thought about it in a lot of detail because... Mm. You just really can't in this pandemic you can't really think no. you can't really foresee big plans 
people just in case um some of my friends have had to postpone their weddings uh, back a couple of years so it all seems very messy so I'm just not really bothered thinking about yeah. it in too much detail but um yeah there seems to be a lot of focus with weddings on pleasing other people um what they mm-hmm. think what they're going to think of it if they're going to be happy if they're going to be satisfied but at the end of the day it's it's ultimately about two people who love each other who want to show their commitment um to the people who are closest most closest to them and that's usually family and very very close friends so yeah I I completely respect you for that and I think that sounds (laughs) what what you describe sounds really really beautiful so yeah congratulations on getting married in COVID times (laughs) yeah we did it in the nick of time (laughs) yeah did and it and it gave us a little boost you know that just we really just wanted to be married for Christmas that was our thing and um and we got to do that. So yeah, it's kind of carried us through to this period where I'm literally counting down the what haven't, you know, four weeks, five weeks that we've got left before yeah. things start to open up again. Yeah. Did you have cake? We did have a cake. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had, we didn't have a, a, a big specific wedding cake. We actually had a very lovely afternoon tea at a very gorgeous hotel. So we basically oh. had about 10, 10 cakes each. Um, we couldn't really move, but <laughs> it, was, it, it was absolutely worth it. It was absolutely worth it. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Um, and yeah, I mean, what do you think of um, unconventional relationships, ones where, you know, it's polyamorous or it's an open relationship? Because it's something that, you know, I've discussed with my partner, um, various friends as well who are who have been uh, or are currently in polyamorous relationships. And um, in terms of acceptance, because it's something that people like, I think our parents' generation wouldn't necessarily appreciate or understand because relationships and marriage... The con- conventions behind those concepts have been focused very much on the union between two people. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to get your insight on whether you think that's going to change over time, especially as people are settling down quite later on in life as well. And so priorities might change uh, in terms of, you know, having a nuclear family, whatever that means anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have no problem with anybody having the consensual safe relationship they want to have with any number of people. It's completely their decision. Mm. And, you know, uh, I strongly believe that people can have very healthy, happy relationships that are polyamorous. Um, You know, many years ago, I was a dominatrix. So I kind of was akin to the uh, kink community. There were often people in that community that were polyamorous because maybe they needed different partners to satisfy different kinks and different things that they wanted to enjoy and that worked really well for them. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's gonna be a slow shift mainly because I think we're kind of living through quite a conservative period in the West at the minute. Yeah. And I think that's gonna carry on building for a little while. What we really need is either somebody very notable or somebody very famous to come, come out as polyamorous and then we'll start to see a C shift. <laughs> yeah, that's what That tends happens. to be the case. You know, if somebody, I mean, it wouldn't happen with an MP, but if somebody who was a, you know, I don't know, some kind of campaigner, very notable campaigner, or somebody who was kind of very high up in another organization came out as poly, then I think that would change. You know, mm. celebrities, Celebrities are always kind of taken with a pinch of salt because you never really know if they're doing it for um, publicity or not. But if the yeah. right celebrity couple could come out as polyamorous, it would shift the dial, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I'm just trying to think of an example and I'm thinking of Caitlyn Jenner coming out. Um, and I think yeah. that, sh- that shifted abroad 
a lot of the discussion to the mainstream that might not have otherwise happened um you know she got a lot of support for for that from her family and from Mm -hmm. the wider community but again that's through the lens of you know a lot of economic privilege as well so I don't know it's a a bit different I think with celebrities Um, but as you say yeah take it with a with a pinch of salt um and yeah I wanted to ask you also about um interracial relationships Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, whether you think that the growing acceptance of both interracial relationships, sexual fluidity, which we've already um, touched upon, have had generally a positive impact on tackling uh, prejudice, uh, otherness, discrimination, things like that in wider society. That is a really interesting question. And it's, I have mixed views on it. Um, I mean, my husband is from Bangladesh originally. He was brought up a Muslim. Oh, he, that's interesting. I'm yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So he and I, you know, he, he's he's an interesting character because, you know, he's very, very westernized. He has a, he has a family who have um, differing religious views, even within their intimate like immediate family Mm. so there's kind of a scale of conservatism to liberalism within the family so that so that's interesting to deal with because they kind of differ amongst themselves about what they believe and Mm. what they accept and what they tolerate in terms Um, of religion or just yeah exactly well and a lot about lots of things like I am welcome with welcomed with open arms which I massively appreciate and he is into my family and um it never really occurred to me when I met him that there might be issues because we live in London. Exactly, yeah. You know, yeah. We, we, we live in an extremely um, accommodating and reasonable community. I've never, we've never had any kind of racial abuse together while we've been out. You know, my, yeah. my husband has growing up, but we haven't as a couple. Mm. Um, so the only time that I felt maybe the difference as in we look different and people are a bit uncomfortable <laughs> yeah is when we've been traveling to other countries actually right. and then yeah. other people yeah. have other people find ha- ask questions or find it a bit odd or you know and that can go both ways they can they can be in my favor and they can be in his favor so mm. um so that's kind of the only time i've ever felt like oh okay we are you know, we're of different races and we're married and people have a, a view on that. But, you know, in our immediate environment, we don't really experience the difference, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you as well. Um, my family's from, um, from Bangladesh and similar to um, your husband's family, there is a, a wide spectrum of views. Um, mm. My immediate family, they're very liberal. Um, they're very relaxed about things. Um, whereas other members in my family, for example, my aunts, um, some of my uncles, they're a lot more conservative, both in a religious sense and generally about Mm -hmm. things like social interactions, um, interracial dating, but I don't really have a particularly close uh, relationship with my extended family anyway. So they don't really, they're not really heavily involved in my personal day-to-day life, but, um, in terms of my immediate family, everyone's very relaxed and my, my partner who's who's English, who's from um, Sheffield. He, he's, he's got a pretty relaxed family. Um, he also have a lot of mixed relationships within his extended family. So it's not 
particularly mm, unusual okay. um and yeah. again similar to you we, we live in London so we haven't really experienced anything like that before but I think the only time I've ever noticed it um again it's just one sort of isolated incident when I was up up north in Sheffield and I think mm. we we're sitting in a cafe or something and yeah this just this guy was just like staring at us like and you could just tell that he was just not happy that we were together but that's yeah. the only thing that I've, I've noticed so yeah I think it's it's definitely very accepted but um not necessarily the same for um our parents generation so for example I'm actually adopted by my auntie my maternal mm-hmm. auntie and she's married to a white guy and she was telling me how when they got together which was like in the early 90s it was it was very different like they people would stare at them people say things yeah and it's completely different now so yeah yeah I think there's been quite a lot of progress made quite quickly Mm. um and it'd be interesting you know obviously I can only speak from my perspective and that's as someone who's white so actually (laughs) my husband might have a bunch of things to say about right yeah exactly that are different we don't talk about it very much which is interesting yeah Um, I I don't really talk about it that much it's it's not really bothered me in my life I don't really like dwell on it or focus on it because yeah you know yeah we have very shared common interests and Mm -hmm. I'm brought up uh, I was brought up in the UK so maybe if I was if I was born in another country and then sort of moved here later on in my adult life maybe I'd have a slightly different um viewpoint but not really yeah yeah uh, but I think I mean it's interesting you know there are obviously places in the world where it's still extremely dangerous to be in a yeah. relationship um and and you know even America racial tension is extremely heightened there mixed mm. couples have you know it's I I found it very interesting I'm kind of going off topic a little bit but I have found it really interesting the comments on Megan and Harry in the past couple of weeks because all of a sudden there's yeah. a bunch of people that have come out of the woodwork that really want to talk very uh in in a lot of detail about what it's like to be in a mixed race relationship and how they've navigated it whereas Harry and Megan have kind of not navigated it with the family which mm. I find really odd there's kind of like this conservative branch in America of of people that want to kind of just lay into them basically for not navigating the family stuff Mm. I don't know I don't know how much that is about race or class or both or or what difference but it it it's kind of shocked me a little bit actually yeah it's probably a bit of both isn't it I think mm-hmm. the class system in in Britain is very prevalent and then in, in America it's not really I don't really know if there is a class system there in the way that there is in the UK yeah I, I think I, I lived in California for quite a while and it was difficult because obviously I was you know only a tourist really even though I was living there and um, the the kind of class dynamics were much more subtle and they were about different things. So mm. it seemed quite hard to pick up. And also if you were British, they just kind of loved you. So they didn't, yeah. really, <laughs> they didn't really pick up on your class. Or they certainly no. didn't on mine. Yeah. So it was difficult to get under the skin of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think class is more like a cultural thing as well as economic mm. in, in the UK, which is quite an interesting observation. Yeah. I, similar to you, I lived in Florida when I was really young. I was about 12, I think, when, okay. I was, when I moved there for a couple of years. So it was very different. Like I, I was obviously not an adult. So I, a lot of social cues I probably didn't pick up on. But from my experience, yeah, it's, it's very different. It's a very different way of life. And there's a really big polarization between um, the wealthy and and people who don't have a lot of money which is not quite the same in the UK although it does exist but it I don't think it's so polarized and I, and I wonder whether that has an impact on sort of cultural norms and class interesting mm. uh, mental health is another thing I wanted to um, touch upon today sure the there's a 
big emphasis on normalizing rest, relaxation, slowing down, just not thinking about anything, which is very difficult for me personally. I don't know about you, but I, I can't. I'm, I'm like I'm a, a constant twitcher. I always have to do something. Um, and the first lockdown compelled, I think, many of us to take a step back from that fast paced, you know, energetic high functioning life that we were living, especially in big cities like London. Um, I remember I was, I always had something going on after work or there was never a weekend where I was just sort of relaxing. And and now that I've taken a step back from that, I think it's completely shifted my own perspective about what's important and what I like and what's good for my own mental health. Um, and I think it's given a chance for a lot of us to sort of leave FOMO behind. If we then compare that to the third lockdown where there was sort of, a lot of um, time spent on online behind the screen and then people trying to desperately stay busy um, to sort of, yeah, stay sane has meant that many of us have hit quite a saturation point. Um, and I just wanted to check in to ask whether you think the roller coaster of emotions and experiences that we've all been through collectively as a nation during this pandemic has perhaps uh, slightly destigmatized mental health. Um, so depression, anxiety, panic attacks, loneliness, stress, those sorts, a lot of people have them on a daily basis um, and people don't necessarily vocalize on them. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I find the mental health conversation really fascinating. And that's from the perspective of me being someone that has had quite serious mental health problems over the years. Mm. I've been anorexic. I have had psychosis. Um, I have had very, very bad suicidal depression at various mm. points. And uh, I have to work really hard to keep myself well. And I generally am well, but there are lots of things that I, little things that I have to kind of take care of on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that I don't kind of sort of start to drift towards mm. the, the more unpleasant places. And what I found reassuring is that the the general conversation about mental health has made it easier for other people to learn what those little things are that they can yeah. do to keep themselves well on a small basis. Because yeah. with mental health, it really is the day-by-day -day stuff that, that you have to watch. Yes. Um, you know, if you have a really unhealthy week, or when I say unhealthy, I don't just mean because you don't eat properly or maybe you don't get enough exercise, but if you are at a screen you are alone a lot of the time you are not sleeping properly you know you are maybe having too many stimulants you know there's like loads of things you can be doing that are upsetting your equilibrium but you know you won't see that difference you'll feel a bit rough after the first week but it won't necessarily affect your brain state that quickly but mm. if you do that repeatedly week on week on week all of a sudden you can find yourself in kind in quite a pit basically yeah and i think what has been really positive is that lots of people have been open about the struggles they've been having there have been lots of specialists in mental health coming to the fore giving the best advice they possibly can about how people can kind of keep on top of how they feel and I do think that the stigma has slightly lifted about admitting that you don't feel okay I mean yeah something that it's interesting because despite having had lots of mental health problems and at periods writing about them I don't really talk about it that much mm. but I decided this lockdown because I have had a lot of experience of getting better and being well and staying well that I would share as much as I could with people on my Instagram about what it took yeah to have I've noticed that I think it's really helpful and necessary. yeah it's just it's been so nice to ha to see how people want to engage, want to share, want to feel better, want to support. And so, I, yeah, my overall feeling is that we have made progress with our relationship to mental health and, and how we 
express ourselves and how we ask for help in the pandemic and that is one mm. of the good things yeah and do you think that the government will going forward will prioritize mental health challenges going forward i know that there's been quite a lot of impact uh, financially that they've you know put into the nhs for mental health services but i just wonder if there's going to be a more a more of a focus on other um challenges which can happen as you said on a daily basis which don't just happen isolated once in a blue moon they they, they build up collectively over time yeah i mean look mental health is a ticking time bomb in this country it was before the pandemic and it certainly yes. will be now yeah and you know all the cases of things like anxiety depression psychosis all those all the all the numbers of those things have gone up during the pandemic the there was a really interesting report on sky news the other week about how the majority of um ambulances called out in wales during a certain week were for mental welfare dealing with people that also have mental health problems as well mm. as some kind of physical health problem and so we're seeing that happen already the biggest problem is that the government has really not put enough money into resourcing the help that people need we don't yes. have enough therapists exactly. we, it still takes months to get a referral through a gp to a mental health unit whether you need long-term support or short-term support is complicated. Whether you go on medication and how that's managed is difficult. The medication mm. you're given is often very generic. You know, we we still really at the very beginning of, we know a lot about it. We know a lot yes. about how to treat it, but we, we're really offering the kind of most basic package to people through the NHS at the minute yeah. and that has to change. Yeah, and it's clearly not very well tailored either. I think a lot no. of the treatments are very generic and you doesn't really mm -hmm. touch upon what someone might need uh, personally for themselves. So yeah, there's a, clearly a lot of work to be done more broadly, but I mean, I personally myself have felt a lot more comfortable talking about things like anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, stress, things like that. Even in the workplace, like I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable talking about it with senior colleagues than I was, than I would have been before the pandemic. So I think for, I think for a lot of people who might have brushed aside um, certain sentiments that they had for fear of you know coming across as unusual for being um judged things like that i think has certainly a lot of people have felt a lot more comfortable talking about these things and i think that's really important i know a lot of um one of my friends actually who has battled depression for as long as i've known her since since we we're at, um, at school and she you know for her she said it was a it was a huge wake up call for the nation because she said, you know, I've been dealing with this since well for decades now and and no one really took it seriously. It feels like it's taken a pandemic for people to actually really reckon with something mm -hmm. that can happen so easily and that people just don't take seriously enough or think it's it's if it's not something that's you know if it's not causing you physical pain then clearly just get on with it <laughs> it's literally been the stiff upper lip mentality that we've seen in Britain but yeah it's definitely changing and yeah still a lot more work to be done yeah absolutely and that leads me on to my next question about post-lockdown life and the anxiety a lot of us have felt um of course no doubt you know I'm very much looking forward to socializing again but at the same time I personally feel you know anxious about the future and the risks of covid um certainly I mean I think it is normal to have conflicting sentiments around it uh I feel quite detached from my lifestyle before the pandemic. It seems like such a long time ago now and 
things like getting on, you know, a crowded tube, um, commuting, sitting in a busy bar or restaurant does actually feel pretty overwhelming for me. And it did so in the in the summer when they um, eased quite a few of the restrictions and were allowed to go out for, for food and things like that. And I, I remember feeling a bit like uncomfortable, um, whereas a lot of my friends just seemed to be getting on with it. And I just wanted to know how you felt about you know, post-lockdown life and whether you've got any concerns about it yourself. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I do have. And that's because I'm a person that, you know, I write books. I love to talk. I love to do podcasts. I love to do TV, but I mm. need a lot of time. I need a lot of quiet time. And um, I'm, I'm extroverted, but I need a lot of quiet time. So I'm not looking forward to the kind of rush of everybody demanding that, you know, we socialize every night of the week and every weekend. Yeah. I mean, I, I will be just refusing yeah. most people's invitations to be frank for <laughs> a while until I've kind of found my feet with it. Yeah. And there are lots of things that I don't really want to do anymore. Certainly over, I have a tendency to overpack my days and I, mm. I really don't want to live like that anymore. Yes. I want to spend more time in nature, which I have done during the pandemic and I want to keep that up. Um, it's interesting because my my husband has bars, so we have a very active social oh, life. You know, wow. we're in the bars, we're yeah. in the bars a lot. But I think I really want to, uh, you know, I don't ever want to go sober for a while. But like, I I don't really want to drink my way through the summer, which is what mm. I think a lot of people are anticipating doing. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I think cutting that back. Um, yeah, I mean, I I'm not that fussed about alcohol anymore to be honest I think I don't think I ever was I think it probably was when I was at university as a lot of people yeah. are, but sort of grew out of it and it's not something that I, I don't binge drink I if I do it will be for like just seeing friends from a party mm-hmm. going out for a, an occasion like birthdays um and yeah I, I think it, it is for a lot of people it's you know just decluttering that's that packed social life and just doing you know only a handful of essential things that you want to do but also of course setting aside time to socialize to enjoy yourself but doing it I think in a less concentrated fashion especially for people who who live you know previously lived really high powered lifestyles who felt like they had to fit everything in you know work social life exercise whatever it whatever it was um so yeah wake up call for many of us I think and I don't know I feel like people are now saying that they don't want to go back to that previous life but once mm-hmm. things start you know up and running um I'm actually thinking a lot, a lot of people will go back to how things were um when other people might not I don't, I don't know yeah it'll be interesting to see I think it'll be difficult to resist pressures from uh from work and from government but I think Lots of workplaces have really embraced homeworking and they've seen loads of benefits to people's health as a result of that. Obviously not during the pandemic, but mm. they can see in the long term if people have flexibility around work, then that huge benefits them. Certainly for women, certainly for parents, it is so important to have flexible working arrangements. And so, you know, people could do lots of campaigning for that during the pandemic. So I, I hope that those kinds of things are taken forward and that people just find it a bit easier to say no. Yes, exactly yeah normalize saying no definitely uh and yeah I mean it's been a really interesting discussion we've covered everything from relationships dating um lockdown life uh, mental health and I hope you've um enjoyed having a chat with me I've definitely enjoyed it with you 
And before we sort of wrap up and conclude, I wanted to ask to um, extract a quote from a book they've recently read, whether it's um, something they relate to, any particular feminist theme or anything else that they find that they have a strong affinity for. If you've got anything like that, it'd be really interesting if you could share that with us. Yeah, so there's a quote that I have remembered since I was about 18. <laughs> and um, it was something that at one point I thought I would get tattooed and just didn't bother because I'm not really a tattoo person. But um, it's it's a, a quote from an old Renaissance manual on how to live well mm. uh, called The Courtier. And um, it goes like... As the soul is far more worthy than the body, it deserves to be all the more cultivated and adorned. Mm. And I think in a very materialistic, performative age, it's a really nice little bit of wisdom to live by. Mm, absolutely, yeah, definitely. Look beyond the material material life. Even, you know, yeah, our own bodies. I mean, we do have minds, if we didn't have bodies, I mean, there's there's a co concept now that we might even live on through computers, even if long after mm -hmm. our bodies decompose. So, yeah, that's, that's going to be a, that's an interesting quote to live by. I think going forward, yeah. I think it will be useful and relevant for yeah generations to come. I hope anyway. Don't know how I'd feel about living uh, through a computer if like the rest of my body is just like underground. Yeah, somewhere. I I've had enough computer work this year to last me a lifetime, so <laughs> I I will be not opting for the upload. Not for that. No, I'm I'm happy to uh yeah to live a mortal existence. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion with you, Nikki, and yeah, you're very personable and very easy to talk to. So I think that's fantastic. Oh, thanks, Tanya. I've been lovely to chat to you. Thank you to you, Nikki. Until next time. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know someone who you think might like this podcast, then please let them know about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Earlier this year, I created a Patreon. I produce and host this podcast entirely on a voluntary basis, all on my own. If you enjoy listening and have benefited from this podcast, then please consider supporting it so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to four of my lovely Patreon donors, Abigail, Rihanna and Alicia, as well as my fiance, Nathan. Thank you so much to all of you. If you'd also like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash browndon'tfrownpod. If you have any thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast, please drop us a line at browndon'tfrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, bye.